today I want us to focus on the love of Christ and what that really looks like. And I want to start in Luke chapter 2. Last week I, uh, we looked at the shepherds briefly in verse 8 and following, but I want us to go back up to the beginning of Luke chapter 2 and see the what culminated here in these these early days awaiting the arrival of, of Jesus. In the first seven verses, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. You know, the typical census. This was the first registration when Quirinius, that's how you say that, and if you're ever doing a Christmas quiz and you need a keyword, it could be quiet or Quirinius. Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Unpretentious, coming into town, lots of people stirring and looking for lodging because they're having to come back to the little town of Bethlehem and there is no room. There are room for some, but for this pregnant lady and her her betrothed husband, there was no place for them. No one got out of their seat and said, why don't you take mine? No one said, hey, I've got a room. I can see that you're about nine months pregnant, about to give birth. Let me, let me turn over my, my comfort and give that to you. And so there was no room. And I consider that, that room, and, I, and I've heard years ago, you know, I'd, I'd hear pastors preach against the innkeeper, how evil the innkeeper was. <laughs> I'm thinking, is there any mention of an innkeeper here? No. But certainly it was packed. There was no vacancy. Have you ever uh, been in a conversation or or perhaps observed uh, something where um, someone is in a conversation and they're treating someone not so well? And then they find out, oh, this happens actually. What's that show where uh, the boss takes on the character of an employee and and cover? What's that show called? Yeah, what is it? The undercover boss. So the undercover boss comes and they're doing all of this stuff and find out they have a bad employee. And then later the boss, uh, you know, unveils himself and says, I'm the boss. And they go, oh, well, if I had known you were the boss, I would have treated you differently. You know, and you have these conversations. Perhaps you've been guilty of that. You know, you're treating somebody maybe not as well as you would treat someone of high position. But you go, well, if I would have known. Well, the whole purpose of that is that perhaps we should treat everybody with full respect. Does it matter their their high position or their low position? There's certain truth to that. But I just sit back and, and think about this moment where the Christ child is coming, the promised Messiah, a pregnant lady, a betrothed husband who is trusting but certainly feels a little out of place. He's kind of caring for a woman who's carrying a child that's not his own. Had that truly been announced in that moment, 
to all those who were there. All of you Jewish people, the promised Messiah has come. And he's in the womb of Mary. The response perhaps would have been a little different. Maybe they would have ridiculed or if they believed, if they would have got an angel and a light and all of the the glory of that, they probably would have said, well, part the way. Let's give her the the, the presidential suite. Let's make sure that if this is the the Christ child coming, we would part our way and, and do all that we could to provide for the most comfortable setting of Jesus. But they didn't know that. They didn't know what all was to take place. Christ could have, you know, been announced by God. God could have from the skies just written something. He could have just, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. Make room for him. He could have, God spoke audibly at least twice in the, uh, in the New Testament that way. But he chose not to. And as I think about Christmas, and certainly I'm sitting in, you know, going through stores, I'm sitting in restaurants that wouldn't necessarily be, you know, like the Christian chicken place down the street that's closed today. You know, you sit in every store, and I'm listening to music, and they're talking about the king of Israel. They're singing Hosanna on the speakers. It's amazing how much of the the Christmas season still is infiltrated with the gospel of Christ. But I wonder how many are paused to listen. And make the connection to more than just sentimentality of the old songs, but really what it means and who really came. With every Christmas, we have the opportunity, as as Robert uh, stated, to just share the gospel, to tell people about hope of Jesus. Why is it that we as a culture don't make a lot of room In our lives for Jesus. Why is our culture who may still play the songs on the radio or in their stores still not make room for Jesus? I believe today, and I want us to see a couple of places in scripture, but I believe we must make room for Jesus because of who he is. If we don't know who he is, is there any wonder why we make no room for him? Just as that first Christmas, she was giving birth and there was no place for them in the end. It's because they did not know who Jesus was. They did not know the Messiah, the Savior, had come. And so today I just want to unpack just a little bit. uh, And I'm going to take us to Philippians because I think it most uh, vividly illustrates doctrinally and practically who Jesus is. That we might make room for him in our lives. And when we communicate the gospel that, that we can clearly see through the, uh, the birth of Christ. We might have something more to say. If Jesus was more known, not just his name or some of the things he did. But the, the totality of his being might the spirit of God use that in people's lives more clearly To open their hearts, to open their minds, to receive Jesus, to make room for him in their lives. In in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 7, if you don't have a Bible with you today, pick up the black Bible in the pew rack right in front of you. Uh, You can turn to page uh, 921. But in this picture here, I believe it it shows not only um, the, the birth of Christ... 
and the purpose of his coming, the death of Christ, the, the, the total bookends of this passage will show you the pre-incarnate Christ before he came and took on flesh. And it also shows you the uh, post-resurrection and ascension of Christ. So it's the totality of, of his being, of where he has come from, where why he came, and where he has gone. And then our response that is needed uh, to these truths. So it perhaps is a little more doctrinal today, but I think it'll be helpful to our souls to see the entirety of the picture so we don't get so narrow just on the birth. But you realize that Jesus was not uh, started in that little manger in Bethlehem on that first Christmas morning. I want you to notice, starting in verse 5, he says... Paul writing here, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, this is prior to coming to earth, he was in the form of God, he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of of men, the incarnation. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The first area I want you to notice here, who is Jesus? That he is holy. Look back up at verse verse 5 and 6. Who he is prior to uh, taking on flesh, becoming uh, this baby with human flesh on and to live this life that we now uh, follow in his humanity. He was holy. It says here, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he was God. He was holy. He was set apart unlike anything else. He did not have a beginning. He always existed. With the Father and the Holy Spirit. He was God. He was holy. He was in the form of God. The New Testament is filled with descriptions of who Jesus is in his divinity. In Colossians and Corinthians and Hebrews. He is the image of the invisible God. The pre-existent one. In John we learn anyone who saw Christ could say that they have seen the Father. He wasn't the Father, but if you see Christ in his divinity, you will know the Father in his divinity. The attributes and the characteristics of the Father also reside in the Son. They are equal in nature. He's known as the Lord in Matthew and Romans and, and Philippians. He's Adonai. He is the wisdom of God. In 1 Corinthians and in Luke chapter 11, he is Emmanuel. You look at this in Matthew chapter 1, and we sing it, Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. God who is eternal, 
all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, prior to the birth, was God always. He is known as Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, the Lord, uh, Yahweh. All things were created by God. Jesus was there as the creator. Zechariah, it says the, the angel, the messenger of the Lord, and we know this to be Jesus. You realize in the Old Testament there were times where an angel would appear, seemingly an angel, and uh, there were times where people would worship the angel, and if the angel was purely an angel and not God, he would reject the worship and say, do not worship me. But there are a few occasions where seemingly an angel appears and he receives that worship. Why? Because that angel was not just merely an angel. It was Christ himself. A pre-existent Christophany is what they call that. Where Jesus who has existed from all time was never created would come even in the Old Testament and make appearances. Prior to him taking on flesh, he would come and interact with his people. He is the creator. He is the son of God. He is the holy one. Throughout the New Testament, Mark, John, Acts, Revelation, all speak of Jesus as the holy one. He's the son of the most high. He is the word in John chapter 1. He is the only begotten. He is the I am. And all of those I am statements were very intentional. Not just for the time period, but it connected him in his divinity. I am. This is why it infuriated the Pharisees. When he said I am, they knew he was taking on a claim of being God. And that's why they said he's blaspheming. So the religions that will claim Jesus is merely a prophet misrepresent his own claim for himself. He's known as God in John chapter 20 and Romans chapter 9. He is the king of kings in 1 Timothy and Revelation he is the Almighty in Revelation. He's the Alpha and the Omega in Revelation. He is the, the Lord God in Revelation, and He is the first and the last. This baby to be born was not beginning. He has always existed. And so when we understand that and He enters into our world, we are ushering in the God who loved us enough that in his pre-existent state, being all holy, all righteous, a part of the Trinity, that was not lacking in anything. When the Holy Trinity is together, when the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have eternity with one another, there is an interconnected love that is absolutely beautiful and not in need let me emphasize this. There are times when I have heard uh, a misunderstanding of God's desire to rescue people. I have heard, and perhaps you have too, that the reason God sent, or the Father sent the Son into the world is because he was lonely and needed relationship. 
That is absolute heresy. God is never in need. When he acts on your behalf, it's not that he is in need, but he sees through his eyes of love, mercy, and forgiveness, you are in need. And he's the only one that can meet that need. This is God who's, who's totally perfect, totally holy, lacking nothing. He didn't even have to create us, but he chose to. And in our fallen, sinful state, he says, I love you enough that I'm going to rescue you to join the perfection that we already have. I will forgive you in your sinfulness. We are holy. We're going to provide holiness for you that you could not do for yourself. And we will eradicate the sinful law against you and invite you into that relationship. This is the holy God who steps in. Oh, if people could understand the beauty of Christ and why he came and who he is, would you make room for him in in your life? You mean a holy God who's always existed, who created the world, who, who is completely content in who he is and how he interacts with the Godhead, desires a relationship with me? That he's coming, not even at our invitation. In our sin, nobody's calling out for God, but God comes anyway and provides a measure of forgiveness, an invitation into holiness. Moving on from the passage, we understand who he is. He was in the form of God, complete. And he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but... What did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The God of all, the creator, the king, the the Adonai, the one who could call anything into existence and, and hold us to account. He chose to take on flesh, to empty himself and become a servant. Or literally, doulos is the Greek word slave. I came not to be served, he told his disciples, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, the form prior to this was God's form, but now he's taking on flesh, which prior to the birth of Christ, Christ had no flesh. He was like the Father and the Holy Spirit. Like a spirit, he he didn't have a body prior to the incarnation, the birth in Bethlehem. He was able to go anywhere. He wasn't limited, but he is humbling himself in this. Unique in the Godhead, Jesus stepped out and said, I will take on the form of a human. This is why the angels stand back in amazement, because they can't understand it. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to that body, but then obedient to the plan of the of the Trinity, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If he had not taken on the punishment that you and I and our humanness deserved, he would not be able to redeem us from the penalty. In his incarnation, 
incarnation, taking on flesh, the divinity taking on humanity, the eternal son made himself of no reputation, as some translations say, of no reputation by taking on the full and true human nature in addition to his divine nature. He didn't cease being God. He was going to be fully God and now fully man, which isn't an easily understood concept. Drawing from the Greek word here, emptied himself, theologians refer to this as kenosis, emptying. See, now you've got a Greek word in your vocabulary for Christmas. Go to your Christmas dinner and say, hey, let's talk about kenosis. And I want to know what you're thinking. The apostle affirms that though he was in the form of God, he voluntarily also took on himself the form of a slave. Kenosis, emptying, doulos, slave. He emptied himself, not relieving himself of his nature to take on a different nature. He added to his nature. He emptied himself by stooping from heaven to humanity and then from humanity to death. The full experience of the human life. I am God. I'm not coming just to, to take a few out. I'm coming to have the entire existence that you have had. Birth, suffering, punishment for sin, and death. And that death even had his father turn his face away from him. To see his humanity lived out. You understand this is the life that we deserved. And Christ in his holiness stepped in and says, I in kenosis will empty myself. Kenosis does not mean to pour out and remove divine attributes as some have tried to insinuate in some of their writings. Instead, it means to make void to nullify or to make no effect. Christ made himself of no reputation precisely by taking on human nature and adding it to his divine nature of uh, full humanity. And when he was emptying himself in a state of humiliation, he didn't draw upon his divinity. There were a few occasions where he would. He would perform a miracle. But even on the cross, as, as one of the criminals next to him, why don't you call down the angels? Why, why don't you, you just do all these things if you're God? And, and he could have, but he had emptied himself. He, 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 he considered no reputation. I am not here to show my greatness. I'm here to rescue you, which will ultimately show the greatness that I bring. He concealed his divine glory and left worship of saints and angels to be despised and rejected by men, Isaiah tells us. And as the suffering servant of Yahweh, he surrendered himself to the will of the Father in everything. If this cup could be passed for me, but not my will, your will. One of the greatest studies you'll do um, is to study the humanity of Christ Though he was fully God, he did not draw upon all of the power of that when he lived in his human life. Too often, people will discount, discredit Jesus' life and saying, you know, well, we should be like Jesus. And people will say, yeah, but I can't be like Jesus. I'm not God. 
You're right. And he was. But chose to put that to the side and live as a human so that you would have an example of what it means to depend upon God fully as a human in your limitations. When you go, how am I going to overcome this and this persecution or this challenge or, or this temptation and all? And Jesus was tempted in all aspects, just as we are, yet without sin. As a believer who has the Holy Spirit residing in you, lean into Christ in your humanity like Jesus had to, to lean into his desire for, for his relationship with the Father, but he limited his own walking to his humanity. Oh, Father, tell me what to do. Oh, Spirit, lead me to where you want me to go. Oh, give me the wisdom. Give me the strength. Give me the insight. Give me the, the, when, tell me when to hold my tongue and when to speak. The very aspects that we have to deal with, Jesus dealt with in his humanity. Study his humanity through that lens of understanding, yes, he was divine, but oh, he emptied himself and became in the form of a servant, a slave. In his humanity, the Bible mentions different titles for Jesus. He is the offspring or seed of the woman, both in Genesis and in Galatians. He is the redeemer. He came as a, a, a human so he could redeem us, both in J, uh, Job and Galatians. He's the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. He is a servant, a slave. He, he is Jesus. He is the son of, and Jesus, by the way, connected to, uh, to Old Testament, Yeshua, Joseph, who rescued the people from the desert, not Joseph, let me step back, Jacob, who rescued his people. Moses wasn't able to get to them in the promised land. And uh, did I say Jacob? I still don't have this right. Joshua, let me get this right. There's so many J's. Joshua, with fear and trembling, was told, be courageous. You're going to, oh, this is a perfect, oh, yes, Joshua. He was under Moses, the, the deliverer. It was great to be second in command when Moses was the wimpy leader who actually led them. And Joshua was like, yep, let's follow. And then Joshua chapter 1, what does it say? Moses, my servant, is dead. Next, it's not in the Hebrew, but it kind of alludes to that. And Joshua was like, I, I can't do it. I don't know. Uh, uh, we're outside. The camp. Maybe we can just hang out here in the desert. Josh was a strong military leader, but he's now being asked to do something he didn't feel like he could do. And what does he do? He, he, God calls to, comes to him and says, you're going to have to be strong and courageous. Says it three different times to encourage a military leader to be strong and courageous. And then you're going to tell him that you're going to be circumcised. You're going to set aside the whole camp. Before you go in, you're going to be all circumcised. And he encounters an angel. And who is this angel for? Israelite people or for those on the other side of the Jordan River? If you recall, go back and study that. He's for neither. He's for his own glory and the things that will take place. Look at that more closely. Joshua was the one who ultimately got them into the promised land. And Jesus, like Joshua, in his humanity was fearing and trembling. 
And God basically tells Jesus in his own spirit, what you're going to encounter tomorrow with the death, my will be done. He's going to give him all the strength, all the courage that Christ needs to cross over the death that that river could have provided, the Jordan River in the Old Testament, and just the, the symbolic river that separates us from God. And God's going to make a way through Jesus. Be strong and courageous. We're rescuing people. In his humanity, he had to walk through that as the, the chosen one, the firstborn, the lamb of God, the lamb that would be sacrificed. He's the last Adam. We had a first Adam that led us into sin, then we've got a last Adam who's going to lead us out of it. He's the mediator in First Timothy. He's the high priest in Hebrews. He's the lawgiver and the judge in James and Matthew. He's the advocate in First John. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he's the root of David, both from Revelation. But just for a moment, I want us to consider the bookends of Jesus' life. Having lived through the exact um, span of time that we, we are allowed, that we are born and we will die. I want you to compare some similarities in Jesus' experience with this. In this humble state. As I said, he is holy, but he, he is humble. First, he was rejected of men. We see in in Luke chapter 2, nobody opened up a way for him to make it to the end. No one was was welcoming this pregnant woman who had the Messiah. He was cast aside even before he was born. That led him to be born in a manger. At the cross, he was rejected by men and hung between guilty criminals outside the city. Mary was present at both. The birth, obviously, but was there at Jesus' death. Myrrh. <clears throat> Myrrh was present when he came. It is as the, uh, the wise men appeared within the first couple of years of Jesus' life, and they brought myrrh. Interesting gift for a child. And then at his death, myrrh was present. There was darkness at that first birth. There was darkness when Jesus died. Jesus was born, he was wrapped in swaddling cloths. When Jesus died and taken off the cross, they, they wrapped him back into cloths. There was a man named Herod when he was born, a different Herod when he died. There was worship that first Christmas morning, the genuine worship of lowly shepherds. The second worship when he was dying, was more mocking worship by the religious elite, proclaiming him king of the Jews. The wise men recognized his deity in Matthew 2, but at the end of his life, there were some wise men who recognized his deity. Even the Roman centurion, who had watched thousands of crucifixions, All these people dying by cross. And then at the end of Jesus' last breath, that centurion looked at Jesus and said, Surely this is the Son of God. There were Jews present at his birth. There were Gentiles present at his birth. There was Jews present 
and Gentiles present at his death. He was hailed as king, though at the beginning it was because, oh, there's a king, and, and Herod wanted to then kill all the boys. At the end, they were proclaiming him king in jest. They did not want a king. There was an honorable man named Joseph at his birth and an honorable man named Joseph at his death. And we find that the chief priests and scribes were involved in both the bookends of his life, knowing that there had been a prophecy of the coming Messiah. Jesus' birth and his, his death were full of humanity, uh, humility and vulnerability. A few other uh, uh, observations. His birth was surrounded by animals in a lonely barn and surrounded by lowly shepherds. At his death, we witnessed Jesus hanging on a cross, crucified and punished along common guilty criminals. It's fascinating, the lowest of society, and certainly I've indicated that shepherds were the lowliest of society. Smelly, stinky, they did their job, but they didn't really interact with the common man in the, in the towns and communities. And, and Jesus invited the lowliest to the birth. And I just imagine at the cross, you have two criminals. Who is more despised in the culture of the day other than criminals? And even there, one of them was humble enough to say, this must be God. And Jesus welcomed him and promised him, today you'll be with me in paradise. The bookends of Jesus' life was all about the love sacrifice in the invitation to those who never would have been invited by the common man. Tells me there's no one outside of the grasp of God. There's no one outside of the the reach and the grasp of God. Consider that as you sit around the table this next week. Consider that with that 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 friend or or that coworker or that relative you think, well, They'll never receive Christ. Christ is able to to capture the heart and mind of anyone. Neither of the experiences of his birth or his death would be considered mighty or grand, but but yet humble and actually humiliating. And the parallel between the two teaches that Jesus' mission was not earthly glory or power but a sacrificial love and redemption. His birth and his death are bookends of a life characterized by humility and selflessness and love. That's why Christ came. But it doesn't stop there. He existed before he was born, and he exists even after his death. I want you to look at Philippians one more time and and see the conclusion of of this section of Scripture. He emptied himself, yes, in verse 7, and and he took on the form of of a human uh, there in verse 8. But in verse 9, after the death on the cross, we understand he was exalted. He, he, He was resurrected. He says, therefore, God has highly exalted him. So, yes, he he is holy He is humble, and if we want to understand who Jesus is, we must understand he is highly exalted. That he's in a position of receiving all the praise and the glory that is uh, bestowed upon him and he's worthy of. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. 
and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What's amazing about this passage is that people who, who would see Christ as being born in the manger going, well, he's not worth much there. And he lived his life as a common man who had no place to, to lay his head. He was mocked and ridiculed. The Pharisees, the religious leaders uh, rejected him. You would think that there's nothing worthy of him. You know, he didn't seem to come after his own glory. He had the power in his divinity to overturn the Roman government. But because he didn't do that, people didn't embrace him. They thought he was a joke. Even his brother James, who was his bunkmate in his house, thought he was crazy. Did not follow him. And so, so many, and even Peter, who had spent three years of his life with him, saw his miracles and and saw amazing things take place from the feeding of the 5,000 to the walking on water. And even at the end, when Christ is being crucified, what does Peter do? And when he's asked, hey, you're one of his disciples, he says... Nope. Let me see your ID. I don't have any. I'm not connected to him at all. Little servant girl that goes, nope, nope, I, 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 I don't want anything to do with him. Even his closest friends rejected him in that dire moment. But then, Jesus fulfilled the promise to take sin to the grave, and he conquered it. And rose from the grave and he called for his followers, even doubting Thomas, who wanted to touch his head, didn't even have to. And he believed. And Peter and James and John and, the, and all the women and, and all those were coming. And James, his brother, who Jesus had a specific appointment with. If you look over in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus went right to James, his brother, who rejected him while he was in his humanity. Now a risen Lord goes to his brother and makes the appeal. And I could only just imagine. I'd love to be a fly on the wall watching that embrace when James looks and he he, he goes probably ghost white oh my my brother's alive everything he said was true and no longer is it just brothers with the same mother it's a spiritual connection with the holy father and James commits his entire life to following Jesus, not as his brother, but as his Lord, and becomes the the pastor of the church right in Jerusalem where all the persecution was happening. And Peter, once he saw the risen Lord, was willing to be mocked and persecuted. It didn't matter. He's the one who gave the first sermon in the book of Acts among all those who were were ridiculing, mocking, and, and, and murdering Jesus. It didn't matter. Once they saw the resurrected Lord, all things changed. And no longer was it about Peter's name or Paul's name or Apollos later or Matthias who they added in or or anybody. It was all about Jesus. Even the point of being stoned to death, Stephen, one of the, 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 the first century deacons, just gave his life. It didn't matter if he was being killed. He just wanted to proclaim the highest name above all names. And in that moment, what did Jesus do who was observing his child, his deacon, taking a beating of rocks for his name? Do you know what Jesus did who sits at the right hand of the Father? Somebody who knows, just say it. He stood up. 
Oh, I can just imagine. He stood up. Why? Because Stephen got it. It wasn't just about receiving salvation. It was about proclaiming the name with nothing hindering you. Because this world was not Stephen's home. He was there just to proclaim the goodness of God until God saw fit to take him home. Even if it was one of the most horrific deaths of a believer, the first martyr on record. Stephen didn't stop and Jesus stood up. He's mine. And you can imagine the arms open wide when Stephen stepped into heaven. This verse tells me that it'll either happen in this humanity of time period for every one of us or it will happen after our death. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why in the world would we make room for Jesus It's because of who he is. He is holy. He is humble and he is highly exalted. And he doesn't need your permission. But he invites you into a relationship, an eternal relationship where you are loved and embraced and kept. And there's a a mansion, there's a room being prepared for you. And we have the privilege as believers to embrace that and proclaim that. And if people don't know on this earth, they will know when they die. And they will proclaim him as Lord. They just won't get to do that from heaven. Why is it essential that we know who Jesus is? Because without us proclaiming who he is now, people will miss the beauty and the sacrificial love that's been offered. Let us be much more compelled to realize that where people don't know who Jesus is, it is our obligation, but ultimately our privilege. Telling them, Jesus is eternal. He chose to come in flesh for you. He died so you would not be separated from the Father for eternity. And that he will be highly exalted. And he's inviting you into heaven where you will be able to do that forever. Or you'll always know that truth separated from him in hell.